we land the aircraft and immediately on the radio, I hear something I've never heard in training. Stop, hold position, incoming. I look at my captain and I say like, well, why would we stop the aircraft if there's another airplane incoming? And he just gives me that look of rookie question. <laughs> just a rookie question, okay. He goes, it's not another aircraft incoming. They heard us. Take those times where you don't have to make decisions immediately as your business is moving forward as a luxury. Take those times to really react to the thing that you wanna make for multiple years ahead and not just in the next couple of weeks. Even in the darkest of times, as, as ridiculous as it might sound, it's fun. It, it is fun. And when you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, if my, if any of my past jobs or companies offered me double or triple what I used to make, and I wouldn't go back and you can actually answer that question, honestly, then you know that you're in the right spot. And it's not always just about money. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Venture Vibes, where we talk to cool people building cool shit. Today, we have Nick Masters on the show, who is the founder of Vector where his team is building an alternative to LinkedIn Sales Navigator to help salespeople find warm leads. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, right, thanks guys, great to be here. Nick and I actually, funny enough, met at a, an event from, what's it called, SVB, Silicon mm -hmm. Valley Bank. Yep. And on my way there, I remember C texting me, I think you're gonna get murdered, dude, this is not real. They don't exist anymore, but evidently they're alive and well. That was a fun one. And one fun fact about Nick, and one of the reasons I was like, I have to get this guy on the show, is that Nick was actually a longtime Air Force pilot. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, 10 years. 10 years flew uh, C-17s, so large strategic global aircraft flying all around the world. And then I was an instructor pilot on a T-6, so a small tandem seat, fully aerobatic ejection equipped seat aircraft teaching pilots how to fly. Spent 10 years flying airplanes, and it was a blast. That's awesome. C-17s are massive, by the way. I Huge. went to an air show Huge. recently and they're just, you don't understand the scale until you like stand in front of one. Airliners are massive, but they're built to carry people and they're long and they're narrow. You've got a C-17, which is a little bit on the shorter end, fatter, and it's built to carry cargo, specifically built to carry the M1 tank from the army. That's what the the mission originally was, and obviously it carries everything from the president's limos to a Marine One helicopter to, you know, troops and cargo and everything that needs to get around the world to support the causes that we're all in. That's super cool. Yeah. Steve and I talk about this often. I am a big nerd playing video games with planes in it. This is very cool. Pretty different from flying a real plane. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> certainly not arguing. <laughs> Although the video games are pretty good these days, man. Like you got, you, you can get a fully uh, realistic cockpit when you fly a flight simulator these today. Very important question I want to ask you, Nick. Hit me. You ever saw aliens when flying around? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny that I've seen aliens. Uh, I have not. No, I've never seen anything that I would even classify as a UFO or any sort of questionable aircraft or anything like that. But frankly, I do believe that there's something out there, right? It would be pretty egotistical to think that we're the only ones with a heartbeat out here in it's this true. universe. True. Okay. I'll ask again when, uh, when I finish recording. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 See, nice record. try. This would be like the spiciest headline of, of the whole show's history. Right? <laughs> Alien Air confirmed yes. by yep. <laughs> Air Force pilot. I would probably right. disappear. <laughs> so now we are comfortable and friendly with each other. Let me jump into something spicier. One thing I get annoyed talking to founders, they all talk about, oh, I'm really passionate about what I do, right? Yep. 
I'm doing this for my passion. I, I found that pretty skeptical because one big chunk of building companies is to deliver value for yourself and shareholders, right? Absolutely. And so there, there are people saying the only thing they care about when studying a company is what they call funder market fit, which is does my expertise and backgrounds yep. give me the advantage to do yep. something successful, right? So as a founder, as a, a pilot, actually, right? Yeah. How do you weigh those two routes? Do you think passion is more important or do you think your expertise, the founder market fit is more important when it comes to building companies? Yeah, I wish there was an answer where I could tell you it's unequivocally one or the other. And in some cases it might be. Let's think about passion for a second and let's look at Uber. Uber was denied by VCs 523 times before they got their first yes. And that is passion. That is, I am not pivoting. I'm going to brute force this thing into the market and it is going to work. That is, I will do this and I will die trying. And that to me is passion, maybe less founder market fit in that capacity, but that is somebody who has brought themselves to be an expert in that field and created the founder market fit, but that's all based off of passion. Coinbase, same situation, right? No after no, when you're going to VCs talking about cryptocurrency, when cryptocurrency was not as public as it is now. And so Brian Armstrong goes out and talks to VCs and continues to get denied and brute forces the fact that he's going to build Coinbase and he's going to do it regardless of how many no's he says, he hears. Now, on the other side, I always thought that in order to be a founder, you have to have that passion. You are going to go all in. You have something that no one is going to ever budge you away from and you're never going to pivot. And that was the thing that I learned the most about being a founder is pivoting is very common. You don't always have a situation where you are going to go take your passion and no matter how many no's you get, you're going to go create it in the market. Brex, the bank for startups, or that's how they started. They started as a VR headset company. And it's like, I did not know how that. do you go from being a VR headset startup to creating corporate cards for startups? And so that is talking about a pivot. And that's where founder market fit came into play because those founders had a successful fintech company as teenagers. And so they wanted to do something that was very interesting to them. It wasn't working. And so they went back to their founder market fit. So I would say there's a nice balance between having the two and you got to just know your strengths. Are you the guy who's going to be the passionate founder who's going to take never take no for an answer? Or are you going to be the one who says that I understand my strengths, I understand my experience, and I'm going to go lean in on what founder market fit really means for me. And I'm going to be flexible and pivot when I need to. It got me thinking when you, when you bring up the point about being insistent on making something work. Maybe yeah. ha being passionate and having the conviction is part of the founder market fit. If you're building something that is truly disruptive, right? One of the attributes requires you is to be blindly passionate about yeah. Maybe the wrong idea, actually, uh, initially, right? So, so maybe that's part of a founder market fit. Absolutely. I've, I've actually not been the person who was like, I'm going to be a founder one day. That is my goal. I've never been that person. And it's shocking because now that I am a founder, I don't want to do anything else. I took a pretty significant pay cut for my career to do this. It is the right decision. It's where I want to be. I get to work with a, um, my best friend. We get to talk about the vision that we have each and every day. And I can't imagine going back and that there is no backup plan. This is it. This is all, this is the path that we're on. 
And for us to think about how we are in control, we know exactly how much is in our bank account. We know our run rate. We know exactly where our company stands as far as health. It's amazing to be able to have that kind of level of trust in each other as founders and be able to go down that path that you never really saw yourself going down. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of paths, you never see yourself going down. And also speaking of founder market fit, Nick, I'm curious, how has the experience of being an Air Force pilot been a factor in you, you know, now being a founder? Is it relevant at all? Is that really founder market fit? Is it the opposite? What is it? Yeah, it's it's a fantastic question. I think about it all the time. And I think about how uh, relatable some of my past experience is that most people don't actually think is relatable. And and you guys hang out with founders all the time. You probably have heard the analogy, oh, being a founder is like flying the airplane and building it at the same time, right? Does mm-hmm. that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. So let me tell you a little story about why I think what my past has prepared me for in being a founder. So it's November 2007. I just spent the last year and a half training to be an Air Force pilot. I'm getting my first operational flight. We're deployed to the Middle East. And this flight, the mission goes to Iraq. And we're in and out of Iraq all the time. This was my first chance to go do that. I'm with an experienced crew. They've done it hundreds of times. And we are flying to probably the most highly active location of Iraq at that time, active in a negative way. And (laughs) and we're on our way in and it's noon, bright sun. It's uh, not a cloud in the sky. You are very uh, vulnerable in those sorts of situations. And so we have to be prepared and we have to do everything that we can to make sure that we execute safely and be prepared for anything that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's everything was working perfectly fine. We had a great crew. We had a great com- communication. I was n- the new guy on the team. So I'm absorbing as much as I possibly can asking questions anytime I get a chance to I'm the one in charge of flying. And as, as you uh, think about an air crew, there's always one person flying and then there's another person working the radios and it can, you can switch in that capacity at any point in time. And I'm flying in and I'm doing everything that I've been trained to do. Everything is working exactly how I've been trained. And we end up coming in doing a combat approach, which is usually something along the lines of being as, as unpredictable as you possibly can, because it is daytime. You're flying a big, loud aircraft. They're going to see you. They're going to hear you. And you have to get yourself on the ground as fast as possible and spend the least amount of time at low altitude. And we come in for approach and we hit the landing. The last thing you want to do is have to go around and circle the airport uh, after they already heard you coming in. Now you're at a low altitude, you're loud and they already know you're there. So you have a lot of pressure to make sure that the landing goes according to plan the first time. Mm -hmm. We, We land the aircraft and immediately on the radio, I hear something I've never heard in training. Stop, hold position, incoming. And I'm like, okay, I know what hold position means. It means stop. So I stopped the aircraft and I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm on the runway. What am I doing? Like, why would I stop the aircraft right here? And I look at my, I look at my captain and I say like, why would we stop the aircraft if there's another airplane incoming? And he just gives me that look of rookie question. (laughs) Just a rookie question. Okay. He goes, it's not another aircraft incoming. They heard us and they're launching either some sort of ordinance attack, trying to just launch things over the wall of the base that we're at, trying to just hit at random, either the aircraft, the base, or anything that they can find. And so I'm looking out the window, and on top of the uh, air traffic control tower is this 360-degree turret. It looks like a hat, and it's just spinning furiously. And all out of it is, it's, you know, ordnance going, just the machine gun that it is firing off. And in that scenario, what it's doing is it's trying to shoot down anything that's coming inbound. 
And mm. so it's identifying any type of ordinance coming in and it's trying to engage that before it actually crosses over the wall. In that scenario, it lasts 30 seconds, one minute, the whole time. All we're doing is talking and planning as an air crew. Okay, what if this happens? What if that happens? How do we exit the aircraft? Where do we go? How do we meet up as a team? And we're planning our plan B, plan C, plan D kind of environment. And so immediately at that point in time, I'm looking around, oh my God, like how common is this? And immediately as I, before I can start asking those types of questions, I hear the air traffic controller in a very calm voice, negative contact, cleared to taxi. All right, it's over. Nothing happened. And in that scenario, I think about how this relates to being a founder. And so when you think about that analogy of being a founder, it's like building an airplane and flying it at the same time. 95% of the time, that is absolutely true. What we fail to recognize as founders is you do have opportunities to pause and think the airplane isn't moving. You can stop. You can react. You can create the best strategy. You don't have to immediately jump to the thing that's in the top of your mind or the way that your gut is feeling. You have a chance to go think about what your plan B is, what your plan C is. You have a chance to talk about with founders, with employees, what life is going to look like if the worst case scenario hits and it's okay because we planned for it. And as my advice as founders and the way I think about this as, as a previous pilot is take those times where you don't have to make decisions immediately as your business is moving forward as a luxury. Take those times to really react to the thing that you want to make for multiple years ahead and not just in the next couple of weeks. Words of wisdom. I actually think that's pretty applicable to life as well. I feel Absolutely. like we go from one thing to the next and most people are very good at handling what's currently at hand and maybe what's immediately next on their minds. But Absolutely. most people, myself included, we don't really think long-term all that often and we don't really plan contingencies. One of the things that impresses me about pilots and all the training that goes into it is you know, all the checklists, all the Mm -hmm. pre-briefing, all the just preparedness of every possible emergency and outcome. Yeah, that's one of the, the best stories I've heard on this show. Thanks. Man. That sounds intense. Yeah, pretty intense. Yeah. I also have a dumb question. How do you stop a plane? Yep. <laughs> you don't in air, so there's that. But <laughs> when you're on the ground, yeah, just like a car breaks, heavier airplanes will have thrust reversers. So when you land on an air, when you land on an airliner, a normal commercial aircraft, as soon as you land, the engines have what's called thrust reversers. They pop out these panels. And instead of the thrust pushing the airplane forward, it actually pushes it backwards as you're going down the runway to, to stop it from continuing to move forward as much as possible. Obviously, that in conjunction with brakes is where you come to a complete stop. I see. So even so the, the engine can go reverse. Correct. Yeah. In okay. some aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, in some right. aircraft, yeah. The C-17 that I flew, it's one of the few, if not the only one, where you can actually put the thrust reversers out in air. So you can go vertically, you go down vertically more than you're going uh, horizontally. Huh. And that was built in a in a combat mechanism. It's super loud, so it never really uh, ended up being a, a combat kind of a, approach. But yes, you can put those in air and you go down in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So see, yeah. yeah, next time you land in an airliner, if you sit in the right seat, you can actually see the thrust reversers come out. Mm -hmm. And that's also why sometimes, especially on rainy days and the aircraft is heavy, sometimes you'll see them do that. Not every aircraft does the thrust reverser upon landing. I think there's like specific thresholds in different air airlines have different roles. But if you hear the engine get super loud after you touch down, usually it's because they're in max exactly right. thrust re reversal. 
Okay. If it goes quiet, that means they're just not reversing the thrust. They're just relying on arrow braking and foot brakes. Yep. Yep. Cool. Yeah, we could spend more time talking about this, obviously. But I let's could, go there. This will just be a plain episode. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll come back to this more, but let's jump into what we call story time, which is to learn you as a person, what your life looks like, what leads you to become a founder. So could you tell us maybe one story from early days, meaning mm -hmm. that growing up, something surprising about you that people might not really yeah. associate you with the, as a pilot or as a founder. Yeah, I think knowing a little bit about some of the stories that I've told and in, in, in the conversations we've had here, you won't find it as surprising. But for, for me, it wasn't really the military that shaped my desire to have a plan and to go through a checklist and to see a vision for myself. It was kind of how I was brought up. Like I always had a plan. I was a kid living in San Diego, so one of the most military-rich towns in the world and living next to a Top Gun instructor. And so I was immediately immersed into airplanes and aviation. That's what I wanted to go down and figuring out how I'm going to go be like that. And so even in high school, it, a lot of people think about, oh, what do I want to do when I grow up? Or what do I want to major in? How, what college do I want to go to? And those are the ones who are actually very have forethought and those are above the average kind of people. And for me, I took it a step further to say, all right, I want to go into the Air Force. I want to fly airplanes. I don't want to pay for it myself because it's super expensive. And so I want to make sure that I have that opportunity. How can I get there? What's my best path? And as a backup plan, I want to go major in business because if something were to happen, if I get denied into the Air Force for some more medical reason, if I don't get accepted into the, the highly competitive approach of being a pilot, I want to have a fallback plan, something I'm interested in. And that's where I majored in marketing. And so from that capacity, I was completely immersed in being that well-rounded person, doing sports, having a part-time job, getting good grades, having okay scores on my SATs, which were not my strength. And I wanted to make sure that I found the way that I could get to my goal as as traditional as possible, being that well-rounded person. Wait, sorry, how old were you when you started planning all this? And <laughs> Around three. Yeah, <laughs> I was certainly in, I remember it to this day, I did a, remember in like elementary school, you do career day and you usually go with like your parents to their job and you sit there and you look at how they like answer phones and call people. I went with my neighbor to Top Gun and walked around his F-14 and sat in the cockpit at about 10 years old. And so I started planning then, obviously, as a 10-year-old plan, your plan is, I'm just going to do this is my job. My, my dream job was to be a professional baseball player. My backup job was to go fly airplanes, right? It was definitely something that I was completely focused on. And then as I got to high school, usually freshman in high school was immediately how I started saying, okay, I got four years to figure out my path. What college am I going to go to? Am I going to choose an academy or am I going to go through ROTC? If so, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get accepted into the right colleges? And what am I going to major in? And how am I going to do it with the least pass, path of resistance? Were your parents also in the military? They were not, no, but they were very supportive in, in helping me make sure that they understood in order for me to go achieve that. Being well-rounded was the name of the game. So like forcing me to say, you got to do better in your grades. You got to do better on your tests. You've got to go get a part-time job. You got to make sure that you're practicing sports because that was a key component of being able to add into that well-roundedness. And just quickly for our listeners, so you mentioned that you went to college, obviously, but yep. you also went to the military. Is that a, some type of program 
that. The- yeah, absolutely. So there's multiple paths you can go through. The most traditional ones are you could go to the academy. So the Air Force Academy, West Point, Annapolis for Navy, all those types of different academies. It is not a traditional college experience. It is basically four years of boot camp, and you are in the military. You are associated in the military as a student in those types of academies. Or what you could do is you can go diversify your experience a little bit, go get a traditional college experience. I went to UMass Amherst, and they had what's called Air Force ROTC. And so basically what you do is you do part-time Air Force training while being a, a normal college student. So you get the best of both worlds at that capacity. And do they sponsor you in that case? Yeah, you can get a scholarship based on your performance. You apply for scholarships like any other scholarship. And again, the process of like your grades in your recommendation from your commanders in those ROTC programs play a heavy role in whether or not you get that scholarship. And I assume you you fly a plane to go to class every day, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) That's the Um, test. Um, One of the... Sorry. Just to mention this, our first guests, Parker, Parks. I was going to uh, say Parker. Self, yeah. Yeah. Is that we actually went to Air Force Academy. Okay. He didn't like that experience that, but, <laughs> you know. It's a sacrifice, yeah. man. I give it to those, I give it to those guys and um, those men and women who go and do that because I loved college. It was a blast, right? I made a lot of friends, learned a lot about myself. They don't get that same experience. Now they love being from that environment. It's an amazing education. It's just a different way of going about it. Yeah. Very difficult way too, from what I've heard. Very. So, yeah. Cool. So one thing I'm curious about, Nick, as we move on in this story, right? You were this kid with a plan, mm-hmm. um, probably 99 percentile, you know, in terms of how much kids actually plan ahead <laughs> at that mm-hmm. age. Uh, I certainly wish I planned more. Um, what's what about like your early career, right? So when you were going through college, you knew that you were going to go into the Air Force mm-hmm. and Air Force is a career in and of itself. You were in there for yep. 10 years. At what point did you start thinking about what's next? Like, were, could you actually be, I actually don't know. Can you be like a lifetime career Air Force? Mm. Sort of, could you make a lifetime career out of it? Was that ever the plan? Or did you always know you wanted to explore something else after a while? Yeah, no, it's actually, it was the plan. And my plan, like I said, to go into being a pilot and getting that experience and then going flying commercially, like that was a plan. And whether or not I was going to stay in for my pilot training commitment, which is 10 years, or go and exit at that point to go into commercial flying or exit after 20 years, which is the milestone to get a retirement pension. And so there are many people, some of my friends who are still in right now, go the distance and go into 20 plus careers. And you can certainly uh, go that path in your career. Now, the longer you stay in the military, the less flying you do, the more strategic kind of planning and office work you're doing as you get older in your career. But you are you are certainly moved up the ranks in in the military because of the experience that you have. And so my plan was always to go do that. Now, the thing that changed was the fact that I did get my business degree, my MBA, and I really enjoyed kind of thinking about the way that businesses operate. I was um, deeply invested in the stock market. I would use my free time to go understand how businesses make money and why one stock is valued at one valuation versus another. And I was just completely uh, immersed into that culture as a hobby. And so for me, I said, okay, do I want to go fly airplanes, the thing I've been doing for the last 10 years and do that for the rest of my life? Or do I want to go change it up and have maybe a a little bit more control over my future in the business world? Hmm. 
Okay. So at what point did you like figure out that, hey, I'm going to leave the military, right? I'm going to go pursue something else. And in fact, I'm not even going to be a pilot at all. Not even flight commercial, just going to go straight into business. I had the opportunity. So when I hit nine years, I had about a year and a half left on my commitment. And I had the opportunity where my career field, my age group and career field were overmanned. And there's this congressional approval that comes down that says, we'll take volunteers to get out early and we'll actually incentivize you and pay you to get out early if you choose to do that. And so there's this application process. I applied for it. I said, okay, I'm not going to go in my 20 years. I'm going to get out in a year and a half anyway. So may as well get out early and go chase the next career dreams that I have. And so I applied for it, not expecting to get it. I got approved. And in four or five months later, I was uh, a civilian. And so that was the moment in time where I had to go find a job um, and start looking and figuring out how to interview, prepare for myself in this world of being a civilian in the corporate environment. And so it, it happened relatively fast. Uh, I expected that I was going to prepare over the next year and a half to two years on how to exit the military. And I instead had four months to go do that. And how was that transition? It, Is it like, paradoxically, you feel like you've been a career person for a while, you feel like you're competent at your job, and all of a sudden, this is a completely different field. Yeah, it was fast. It was mentally fast. It felt quick. And so there was a lot that I learned where it's like, how do I speak the language of being in the corporate world rather than using ridiculous acronyms and all the things that you speak about in the military? How do I actually speak in words and in in terms that people will understand? How do I convert the skill sets that I've learned into the business environment, because I know there's a lot there, but I have to articulate it the right way. And so for me, uh, one of the biggest learnings I had in the job search was everyone puts so much emphasis on your resume. And it's, I'm going to spend hours and hours nitpicking every little piece of language and word and punctuation that I put there right up until you realize that a hiring manager and a recruiter spend seven seconds on average looking at a resume, seven seconds, and you spent 75 hours perfecting it. And, mm-hmm. and for me, what I realized very quickly, it's the interview. Just get yourself to the interview. The resume gets you an interview. The interview gets you a job. And so right. for me, it was the preparation of interviewing, understanding what the difference is between like a transactional interview and a behavioral approach interview. So tell me a time when you did this thing. And I actually had to prepare in the sense of asking myself questions on a recording and then recording my answers to probably about two to three dozen different questions. And then just listening to myself answer those questions in the car, anytime I was driving, anytime I was walking the dog, how many times did I say, how many Mm -hmm. times did I stutter? Did I answer the actual question or do I just ramble? And so for me, the preparation was a lot about preparing for the interview and articulating the things that I did in the military and comparing that to the corporate world. Sounds like you had a plan. (laughs) <laughs> I had a plan, I had a checklist. That actually, that sounds like solid advice. And you left the military as a captain? Yes, left as a captain, soon to be major. Nice. Okay, so you, when people call you a captain, you yeah. actually <laughs> That's right, yes. I, nice. Yeah, I respond to that. <laughs> nice. I have one more question about your earlier career. Sure. What's the one biggest learning you have <clears throat> working for other people, working in the corporate mm. world, if I pick one? For me, the biggest thing that I emulate as a leader myself, and it's because of the leadership that I've seen in my career, is just empathy. Being able to make sure that you understand how people think, how they think differently from one person to another, 
which means you have to articulate your instruction differently. Much, um, some people like it direction, very direct and blunt. Other people do not. I learned that as an instructor pilot where I could say the exact same thing in a different tone, using different words to different students. And it just depended on who they were and the, their personality type to understand whether or not that instruction was going through. And when I think about somebody who uh, shuts down and um, gets very defensive when you give them blunt feedback, you understand that that shutdown is not going to get through to them and they're going to resent you for it. And so you have to understand them quickly about their personality type to say, I need to give this person quick feedback in the moment, or I need to do this tomorrow after they reflect on what just happened and I can articulate it in as few of sentences as possible, but still also maybe even being a softer approach. And so for me coming into the corporate world, like everything in the military was blunt, full of curse words and saying, you didn't do this the right way. It was There was no question about when you screwed up in the military, but that does not translate as, as efficiently over into the corporate world. So you have to figure out how to have that empathy and understand the type of personality you're talking to. In the interest of time, I'm going to move us on a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you've worked at a couple of different jobs and then you eventually ended up founding Vector. Yeah. What made you take the plunge? At what point, as you said, you didn't always want to be a founder, right? Yeah. When did that become an idea? When did that become serious? And mm -hmm. you also mentioned that you actually had to take a pay cut as most founders had to take a very sure. real financial risk. Yep. Why did you decide to do that? That's such a crazy thing to do. It, it was certainly crazy and it didn't come without very detailed analysis and conversations with, with my wife and my kids on the, the path that we're about to go down. But we were working at, we being my co-founder and I, we were working at a company called Drift, fantastic startup in the Boston-based area. And we were in the middle of going through just a, a lot of changes in, in both the product and personnel, but we were there as leaders in the sales engineering develop, de department. We had a fantastic team. And it was my co-founder and I who would just always try to come up with new repeatable ways to solve a problem that we continued to see across multiple organizations, typically the sales organization at our current company. And that was just the, the nature that we were in. We were always solutionizing for our customers and then also for our, our fellow colleagues. And so it got to this point where we said, we, we have a lot of these problems that we've recognized like every other business does. How real is this one problem that we're focused on and how can we try to make it better in a more repeatable way. And so it came to this point of like, just understanding your environment around you. And we got passionate about just trying to figure something out. And it was never meant to be a, a business or a found a founding team. Hmm. And we would do our normal job. We would go break for dinner with our families. And then when everyone calmed down for the night and went to bed, it was my co-founder and I that came back on Zoom and spent from 10 o'clock at night to, to typically about midnight, five to six times a week. Just brainstorming ideas, thinking about new things. What problems did we run into today? What things did we say, God, there's got to be a better way? What trends were we continuing to see? And then how can we take those problems that we've observed and make sure that they're problems in other businesses? And then it just turned into saying, we have a really cool idea. Let's go apply to Y Combinator because we were using Y Combinator's startup school and listening to their podcast. And we continued to think like founders before we even realized we were going down that path. It's we in a just whirlwind of throw an application into Y Combinator in their late round acceptance, 
we heard from other founders that Y Combinator does a great job giving you feedback when they deny you. So our whole purpose in applying for Y Combinator was go get feedback on our idea when they say no. Like that's, that was our best expectation. We, no way, way, shape or form were we gonna ever get into anything. And right. so we put, put the application in. Uh, a week later, we get a note saying, here's your interview date and time. And so, wow, we didn't expect that. Okay, cool. We're going to get even better feedback now because now we get to talk to somebody. And so we did the interview. They asked us for a second interview. They asked us for a third interview on a Saturday night because it was coming down to like the conclusion of them having to pick their final batch companies. And come Monday morning after that Saturday interview, we got the notice saying that we were accept accepted in a batch with a 1.4% acceptance rate. We were stunned. We had talking to a guy who likes to plan. We didn't plan for this. <laughs> like, yeah. We had no idea. What do we do now? We can't pass up this opportunity. And so this is the, the chance where we just crunched all the numbers, said, okay, we're going to take this pay cut. This is a pretty significant milestone. This is going to stick with us throughout our careers, regardless of where our startup goes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to learn a ton doing it. And that's where we said, okay, this is worth the risk. We are about to go join if you think about it in its dumbest down way, we're, we're about to go join a think tank and we're just going to think some <laughs> stuff up. Even if we go pivot from our idea, we're just going to spend a year. We've got the budget to do it for a year. Let's do it for more than that. But let's just go think things up and just dedicate our entire year to developing something right. and finding uh, a solution to someone's problem. And that's the, the spot we're in right now. And we've pivoted uh, a couple different times and, and we're finally on a path that we feel very comfortable with. That's incredible. It's almost like a one out of a hundred acceptance rate. And all these companies yep. are, they put hard work and a, a lot of thought into it. So congrats on yep. being part of Y Combinator. It's legendary stuff. I'm curious though, before obviously you apply to Y Combinator, there's gotta be a, some degree, right? Some part of you that understands like, hey, this could, I'm taking a step, I'm dabbling in this thing that could end up changing what I do, yeah. potentially forever. So it really became real as you were going through the interview process, mm -hmm. right? And then as you got the acceptance from Y Combinator, I assume there's a, a, a deadline to go with it or give up. Yeah. So was yeah, it like once... a time crunch within a few days, decide if you're going to keep your job or you're going to like totally change your career? When we got, because we applied for the late, batch uh, or the late acceptance round, it was basically like we, we got the morning of that Monday, you're, you've accepted, please let us know end of day that you're in or out. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the batch was supposed to start a month from that acceptance date. And so we had to put in our notice, like we had to go put in our notice at Drift and Josh, my co-founder and I, we're both in the same division. We both lead the sales engineering team. So now you're going to have two leaders walk away and it's, we've got to give our current company the respect that they deserve to say, we've got, we've got to give you as much notice as possible. And so we did that literally that day. We accepted, we said we're coming and we put in our notice that day at the same time. And it's obviously a very challenging environment for and bittersweet and scary, but it was moving so fast. We didn't have time to get wrapped around the unbelievable emotions that you could get wrapped around of, oh my God, I'm just, I'm quitting my career. I'm taking a 65% pay cut, but I'm, <laughs> I'm doing it with the aspirations of building something that is, is beneficial to the environment that we're building it for. Yeah. Honestly, um, probably a good thing to compress the time frame because it's one of those decisions that you could never yeah. really make. Give it more time. It's not more useful necessarily.
Yeah, the analysis paralysis kind of environment where you just overthink, no, this is just ridiculous. I can't do this. Who am I? I'm walking into the most highly sought after accelerator program in the world, and I'm surrounded by people with PhDs in AI and LLMs. And it's just, who am I to be in this environment? You think about all of that and all the reasons not to do it, you'll talk yourself out of it in a hurry. You're the one who landed aircraft in a combat zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't discount that. So we want to pivot to the last section, which is deep questions. But before that, we always ask our guests this one question. What is success to you? What does it mean yeah. to be a successful um, person? It, it certainly had cha has changed over being a, a director in sales engineering to now being a founder. That definition has changed significantly. I would say as a founder right now, I will know I've hit a successful uh, path when we have employees and product market fit at the same time. And the way I think about that is like right now, everything seems like a test in an experiment with my co-founder and I, where we build a little bit of a product, we put it out in, in the wild. Does it work? Does it add value? Yes or no? Do we pivot from that? Yep, we've got money in the bank. Let's spend that responsibly. But eh, it's all just kind of decisions, right? Should we go spend a bunch of money on a new domain with our future understanding that our company is going to be worth something someday? Or do we just say, no, we can't spend that money right now because we just don't know what we are yet. And so I would say the, the moment you have the responsibility of employees working for you, even though they understand or should understand the stressful environment that they're getting into in an early stage company, a seed round type company, that's when you say that you've had success, that you can accurately look them in the eye and say, our company is going to be just fine. Hmm. We have the path that we need to go get to the next stage, whatever that is, maybe series B or C or an exit of some sort. That's when I know that we're going to declare some sort of a victory to say we have success. So that's more like a success for your company. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm also curious, mm -hmm. as a person, yeah. as Nick Masters, what do you see as successful? Is it purely building a huge company that will IPO one day? Is that ultimate success for you or it's something mm. else? I would say some sort of financial independence. Somewhere I can say that I love what I do. I love getting out of bed in the morning and I am working in the right space for me that I am passionate at and I do have founder market fit, that is an area where I say, like, I can look at my kids and say, like, I've done something that I wish you would be able to do as well. And I'm not stressing about, are we going to be able to pay our bills or are we going to be able to get to the point that I want to get to financially? It doesn't necessarily mean I have six houses and own my own airplane, which I definitely want to do. But I, it doesn't, that doesn't mean, that doesn't have to mean success. That will be successful, but that is not the, the baseline definition of success for me. It's just enjoy what I'm doing and have the happiness of my career far and away outseed the, the stressors that I might feel every day. Interesting. So obviously the six houses and the, and the jets part uh, is exciting. <laughs> and I think most of us would be lying if we said we didn't want something like that, but Getting up in the morning and enjoying what you do, is this something that you found to be the case now that you're a founder versus jobs before, especially since yeah. it seems like you really enjoyed your jobs before and you had good coworkers and good teams? Yeah, I did get up in the morning and like what I did with all the different jobs I've had. But 
now I know what like really enjoyment looks like. even though it depends on the hour, not even the day, the hour of like where you are in the peak and trough of the founder emotion roller coaster that we're on. Even in the darkest of times, as, as ridiculous as it might sound, it's fun. It, it is fun. And when you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, if my, if any of my past jobs or companies offered me double or triple what I used to make, and I wouldn't go back and you can actually answer that question, honestly, then you know that you're in the right spot and it's not always just about money. Hmm. Yeah. Time for the deep questions. What really matters? And that, of course, is aliens. We on this show have a history of talking about aliens. And Nick, of course, we've all seen these distorted footages of whatever aircraft targeting systems locking onto mysterious object. And of course, we wanted to get a straight answer from you and we failed to. But yeah. we're curious, what are your thoughts on aliens? Do they, do they exist? Oh my God. I love this topic. I've always been fascinated with space, with the universe, with astronomy, all of this entire area. And I have two kind of thoughts and they both come from Neil deGrasse Tyson. You guys familiar with him? The American Man, astrophysicist. The legend, of course. Amazing, amazing speaker. If you By ever have way, a chance... Yeah. By the way, Nick, I can tell that you're into space stuff because your website is a black hole. That's right. That's I don't right. know yes. how many people would get the reference, but that is a black hole. <laughs> yes, yeah. sir. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, he came to BoxWorks, the customer conference that's annually held in San Francisco for Box. And he had an amazing story around the comparison around what humans, how humans are thought of and what the comparisons are to the closest ancestors we have. So when you think of a chimpanzee, we have about a 98% DNA overlap as humans with a chimp. That explains um, what if, what if something came to earth who had a 10% improvement or 10% overlap with the human race? When was the last time you looked at a chimpanzee and explained your day and your challenges to them, even though they had a 2% overlap? Do you ever think that somebody from some other world, other universe would come down and have an intelligent conversation if they were 10% better? Right. Than, than a human, they've probably come down and said, we're looking for intelligent life and we haven't seen any here, so we're just going to leave. Like you wouldn't have that conversation with a, a chimpanzee. Why would you have it with the same ratio of, of DNA overlap if you came down and looked at Earth the way it is? Other really good thing, point. the other thing he said was, how much of the universe have we explored for extraterrestrial life? If you take all the water in the oceans on Earth and equate that to the universe and you fill up a 12 ounce glass of water from the ocean, that glass is how much we've explored. So to say, are there any fish in the ocean? I don't know, let's find out. Take a glass, 12 ounces, scoop it up. I see no fish, therefore there is no life in the universe. It would be right. egotistical to think that. And it's right. just, it's wild to see those comparisons. And yeah, fascinating topic for sure. So you're in the definitely yes aliens camp? <laughs> I am in the, I'm very, I am leaning more towards, yeah, there's something, there's gotta be something. Out there. So what the Fermi paradox essentially phrased that there are so many aliens in mm -hmm. the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Where are they? Why well, we haven't seen them just now throughout history, right? There's 
Sure. Some very distorted footages of aliens, but none of them is proven to be 100% true. I think Nick's points, or Neil deGrasse Tyson's points. It's okay, I can take credit for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also answers that question to some extent, right? One is just, to our puny minds, can we really even interpret seeing an alien? Or would it just be so far beyond us? And why would they even attempt to try to explain it to us? Right? They probably wouldn't. And the other one is, we've explored so little. That, yeah, sure, we haven't seen aliens yet, but the universe is so incredibly big that we really haven't seen much at all. Yeah. I actually um, think we're probably the aliens. We are yeah. the weird ones. <laughs> That's a good answer. Someone That's, else. We, yeah. We're, what, bipedal, hairless monkeys yeah. that <laughs> pretty cannot, weird combo. Su- cannot survive in the wild for just two seconds, pretty much, nowadays. Right? Maybe Nick, obviously, can stay, yeah. long, stay alive longer. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's survival training involved. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think uh, alien life forms, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you flip that around, I think I shared this last time as well. I think aliens are already among us. And I don't know, I don't mean by like, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. If you, you look around, <laughs> if you look around virus, bacteria, all those things are pretty weird. Yeah. Right? They, they are very yeah. different life forms. So if by aliens, we mean something we don't understand. And they don't share the same evolution pathway with us. We are living amongst aliens, right? And to you guys' point, um, we are pretty narrow in terms of our search for alien lives. And I think that's, maybe they're already among us, we just don't know. We don't recognize them as beings, basically. Yeah. And think of just even 20 years ago to have an unmanned spacecraft, right? That was some science fiction type stuff. And now that we have them in the human race, like they're all over the military and we have those. And so to think like, why would a UFO come here with nothing on board? How is that? Yeah, exactly. So now it's, oh, maybe there is some intelligent life that has figured out how to get here without having to have a living being inside of it. And they're just using that as a reconnaissance tool, the same way that we do it here on earth. Right. In the form of balloons. And other things. (laughs) So I guess the the other interesting theory I've heard there is forget, like, obviously there's all these different dimensions you could go in. Oh, what is life, right? Maybe it's here. We just don't know it yet. What is truly alien? Mm -hmm. Um, The other dimension that people have explored is let's even assume that alien life would be little green men with huge eyes and whatever. Like we would totally know it when we see it, right? Because the universe is so big that it's certainly a possibility that there would be alien as we imagine it also out there. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, why aren't they anywhere? And one of the theories is when you look at the history of the universe, there's this idea of the anthropic principle, this idea that what is observed, we are here to observe it because it's plausible, because it's likely. We can't see universes where life can't exist because we wouldn't be here to see it, right? So there's this idea that we exist now and it seems quiet here because it must be the rule of our time, that it must be mm-hmm. quiet everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're not incredibly lucky. We just happen to be spawned at this time to observe this time. That's just a statistical likelihood. And what they're arguing is if life truly evolves like it did on Earth, then there's probably a huge explosion of life when the universe cools and evolves to the point where it can support life as we know it. Yeah. And so there's going to be no life because like earlier universe is very hot and chaotic. A lot of things can't really survive for long. And then once it gets to the critical moment, it crystallizes and all the life sprouts everywhere all at once. There's billions, trillions of species out there all evolving alongside us. And we're in that tiny sliver of time right before everyone makes contact with each other. But a tiny Mm -hmm. sliver of time is forever to us. 
chimpanzees are 90% the same and we're millions of years evolution-wise with a shared ancestor with them. Yep. Who knows what's know. going to happen next? This could all change very soon. And by That's very crazy. soon, it could be tens, hundreds of thousands of years, right? But in yeah. cosmic scales, that is an instant. I would love to get some answers in my lifetime. I want to know. <laughs> yeah, hurry up, aliens. We got to know. <laughs> all right. We are at time here. Thank you all very much for coming. Nick, really enjoy the conversation. Likewise. I'd love to catch you sometime and get another beer. Let's do it. Person. Anytime. Cool. All right.